like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossett. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and just like last week and the week before it's still november believe it or not and we are still talking about the 30th anniversary of versus last week we talked a little bit about ed's arrest and we had jack mcdowell on the show which we'll talk about later in kind of the conversation that we had with jack and where you can listen to the full thing we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show but also we have a guest on today's episode that's going to help us talk about the 1993 era and what was all going on at that point because some really really interesting stuff things that we've talked about some new facets that are brought to light too in a different perspective and one from jonathan cohen who wrote the damn bible on Pearl Jam and PJ20, so if there's anybody to consult about things like this, it would be him. So we're really excited to have him on, and today's episode is Nagadoches. Now, maybe a lot of people aren't sure what happened on this night in Nagadoches, but it is relevant to the story. In 1993, this is a show where Dave has some issues at the end of the main set after a live. We're going to kind of elaborate on that in a little bit when it's time to, but the band has to play the rest of the encore without Dave and sort of come up with songs on the fly that they can do that doesn't need his presence. So that's an interesting tidbit. That's kind of a reason why we picked this show to do because it does stand out amongst the rest. And it's also a big part of what plays into 1993 that we'll get into with our conversation with Jonathan Cohen. 
That being said, Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. First off, don't bury lid. I'm not going to let you get by without you're just out here quoting Murder City Devils to start the show. Just like last week and the week before, I'm like, Randy's throwing out Murder City Devils lyrics right up from the get-go. I didn't want to just blow by that. Uh, love that song. But yeah. Um, you're acting the, like I did it all on purpose, right? Exactly. Yeah, I was giving you I was giving you that. No, great Murder City Devils song. I want a lot now. So come on. Yeah, well, I do know that song, so I, yeah. I'll, I'll take credit for it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, we're, we're knee-deep in 1993 right now, and it's awesome to go back and like kind of dig into this era a little bit. And as Jonathan's going to mention, these shows are just ferocious and intense, and like the band was changing like night in, night out. They were evolving and growing and learning by themselves, and each show is unique and awesome in its own right. So yeah, this has been fantastic. All right, so let's bring in our special guest today. He's been on the podcast before. If you heard him, you know what he's worked on. He's worked on the Bible, PJ20. We've talked about that before. The book for all the information that's gone down all the timeline throughout the years. He did a lot of research on it. He's been a great guest, and we're going to have a great conversation with him right now. Jonathan Cohen, welcome back to the show. Hey, what's going on? Thank you, Randy and John. Pleasure to be back with you again. Absolutely. And this was actually semi your request because when we did the Slims episode, I was looking for somebody to come on and we ended up having Kathy Davis, which was amazing. We were looking for somebody that had been at that Slim show and and you responded right away. You're like, I want to talk about Slims. So I guess, you know, right there, what about Slims? And obviously that's such a, an important show for them, but where do you kind of see that show sort of starting out this tour and start out this year that they were able to kind of put their songs out there, get the audience used to them at first and kind of see where, what they felt with those, because, you know, they had better man, they had whipping at the time. Don't know if they were fully planned for the album yet, but things kind of developed and they kind of knew what songs that they were going to bring to the table. So talk a little bit about that show and how that kind of set the tone for what the rest of the year was. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there are so many interesting aspects of that particular concert. And I think one thing that it sort of set the template for is Pearl Jam playing sometimes just for fun under a fake name in a small venue, regardless of whether there was a real reason to do so or not. It may have just been because they wanted to. And fans have been lucky to experience the band in settings like that pretty much ever since. So it's a big deal in that respect that Pearl Jam enjoyed experiences like that and knew that they would be special not only for themselves, but for the audience. And beyond that, this is, I think, probably up to that point, the greatest example of the band being comfortable testing out new material or going back to songs that they hadn't really played that much in months prior. And my goodness, I mean, we have basically the entirety of verses being debuted at this show, like more than five months before the album was going to come out. And that's another dream come true experience for, you know, the lucky fan that would have been in the room that night. And throughout the show, you can tell that the band is having fun. There's little bits of eruption. There's little bits of dirty deeds done dirt cheap by ACDC. It, it, it's all in the spirit of let's just enjoy this music here tonight. And 
that principle has been carried through the rest of the band's career for you know the past 30 years and we're, we're all the luckier for it i'm glad that you brought that up right there because it did feel at some points that 1993 and even going into 1994 a little bit were a little strenuous on the band. You know, they were dealing, they were on the road and finding these things out about how their popularity has skyrocketed into way beyond what they thought that they had in 1992. And then, you know, once you get into the Time Magazine stuff and finding out that they had sold a million copies, do you think that it had a little bit of a change that some of the fun that they were having just playing music started to weigh on them a little bit because of those activities that were happening outside of what they were doing on stage? Yes, I think there's no question that that is true. And really, it's it's hard to imagine, no pun intended, what it really did feel like for the guys at that juncture things were just moving so quickly and it was so completely out of their control that that's a difficult position to be in. And, you know, it's reflected in the PJ 20 book in a few instances when, you know, people around the band or even the band members themselves are talking about what it was like to get the phone call that versus had almost sold a million copies in its first week. And at a time when normally you would imagine they'd be, you know, jumping for joy the response was kind of muted and it was a more introspective time where the guys had a lot to think about. And I think it did probably affect their ability to get up on stage and tune all of that out and just play for fun. You know, the the shows from 93 are pretty much universally ferocious and wonderful, but part of the tenor of these new experiences is definitely reflected in their attitude on stage at times. There are probably a thousand cautionary tales of bands that this happens to where you put out your first record. It's a big hit. You put out your second record, the sophomore slump, and then the band breaks up. Like it's happened over and over again in rock history or bands that get to this level where they reach the level of fame and renown that Pearl Jam had in 1993 and they can't handle it. And it, it falls apart. I mean, you'd mentioned like they had to be kind of insular and like they kind of shut everything out. But was there anything else from this year that you think like helped them survive that and be able to become, you know, the band that they became? Sure. Well, like you said, be- beyond having that super trusted core team of just a handful of people, both on the management and label side, 93 was a period when some of the elder statesmen of rock and roll came into the band's orbit. Summer of 93 is when Eddie met Pete Townsend in person for the first time. Summer of 93 is when Pearl Jam opened for U2 in Europe when they were playing stadiums and really got a firsthand look. It was almost like a sliding doors kind of thing where you know, there, there was a scenario by which Pearl Jam someday could have been playing that kind of stadium show that U2 was doing right then. 93 is when Neil Young comes into their world in a big way. And these are incredibly steadying and stabilizing forces for the band and just made a huge impact, I think, on their outlook and helping them see that as white hot as it was in that moment, that there was a long career ahead if the band wanted it. But it was going to be difficult to achieve if they were so single-mindedly focused on 
doing it their way, if that makes sense. You know, sometimes there has to be a little compromise. And I think the lessons of the long careers of Neil Young and Pete Townsend and you too were important for the guys to see that there were ways to do it. You know, there were other ways to do it that could last a long time and could keep you sane. Maybe it wasn't fully apparent in the moment, but the profound influence of those folks and others was very clear, even within a year when, you know, you, you, you have the foundations of the Mirrorball record with Ed and Neil playing in Washington, D.C. in early 95. And this, you know, lifelong friendship that Ed established with Pete around that time as well and with Neil. So I don't think you can overstate the importance of those people coming into the band's world at that time because it proved that there was a way forward. What shows kind of stick out before the release of Versus just kind of stick out as kind of turning points for the band in that, that summer, early fall? Anything stick out to you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a few. The shows in Norway in late June, I think, are particularly cool. There's the famous show in Stockholm on June 28th when Ed's journal is stolen. I, I don't know that in the moment the band was all that thrilled with things like that happening. But when you listen back to those shows, you, you're just getting a little bit of a sense of what's to come, you know, that something is building and that it, it's going to explode more sooner than later. You know, even some of the YouTube shows I think are good. It's nice to hear these kind of proto versions of the Versus songs, again, months before the album was released. Some of the shows with Neil Young in the late summer and early fall before the album came out are great. There's also sort of a, a fabled club show that happened in LA after the VMAs mm-hmm. at the Viper Room. And to my knowledge, there's no recording of this circulating. So we're sort of relying on, you know, feedback of people from the time as to what happened. But that was a chance for the guys to be around their peers in an industry setting and figure out a way to make it tolerable, i.e. have Neil Young come play with them on Rockin' in the Free World, which he had released years earlier. It had nothing to do with Pearl Jam prior to that point. But that's the way that they got through situations like that was to defy expectations and then go play a club show and uh, mess around with the guys in REM and call it a night. Now getting into late October, November ish. And while all this is going on, what we talked about before, how outside of the shows, there was a lot weighing on them every single day. It felt like there was something new about Pearl Jam, something maybe that's even just being concocted by the media just to make a story just so, you know, now they call it for clicks, but for then, you know, for newspaper sales, for magazine sales, whatever it is for MTV viewers. But along with that, they're on the road and they have a pretty rigorous schedule here. Almost every night they're out doing something. And if they're not playing a certain night, then they're traveling a pretty decent distance to go to the next place. And this is where I kind of want to bring in this story right here. So we did the New Orleans show from last week, and there were three New Orleans shows. They had the 16th, the 17th, then the off day on the 18th. And that's when they went and recorded. And also the the night that I got arrested. And then the 19th. Now for the show that we're covering today, Nakadoches, 
they travel from Louisiana to Texas and go do the show. That's a hometown show for Dave Aversay's. So I was actually interested because the story of the show is very interesting because you just don't really hear this being talked about that Dave had actually not come out for the encore because people just said that he collapsed, he passed out. And I actually wanted to get to him for some clarification on that to see if he had an answer for that. And thankfully, he was kind enough to to get back to me. So I'm going to read what he had to say. And it kind of goes into that whole story of it just being a lot all at once. So he says, I had been battling with what would eventually become me having my tonsils removed. I was on some strong antibiotics, and that, coupled with the fact that we were pushing very hard on that tour, led to me being exhausted. I personally requested that Nacogdoches be a tour stop. I spent a lot of time there and knew that they would love a show. I had invited a lot of friends down from Dallas and spent a busy day with them. Now, halfway through the show, I began to lose feeling in my hands, and that brought on what I would find out later to be a full-blown panic attack. I played the set in its entirety, but as soon as we were done, I asked to be taken to the emergency room because I didn't know what was happening to me. So I left before the encore. And being passed down, and look, we don't have that kind of access to Dave back then that we do now. He's on Facebook. I sent him a message. I've sent him messages before. He's told me stories before, and he's pretty accessible if you get to talking to him. So react to that a little bit. Like, have you ever heard that story before? Is this something new for you? And does this all make sense as to what was going on this year? Because it just kept, you know, think about it. A couple of nights before that, Ed gets arrested. And now you're worried about a band member. Like, is his health okay? Do we have to stop the tour? So uh, what, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I am familiar with the details of what happened that night. And yeah, I think in a nutshell, that is sort of the flip side to all of the amazing things that were happening for Pearl Jam at that time is that it actually did take a human toll on them. That was the beginning of a period. Maybe it wasn't the beginning, but it was certainly in the midst of a period of time when it was difficult for Ed to be out in public. And New Orleans is an example of that where someone approached him, some things were said, maybe uh, some other things were said, and it, it led to Ed getting arrested and poor Jack McDowell getting knocked out. And I don't know that Ed was cruising for a fight, but you probably couldn't blame him for being, uh, you know, maybe not in the world's greatest mood at that exact moment um, when he was just out there trying to enjoy himself. So, yeah, th- th- this is the manifestation of entities from on high, maybe giving a little sign to the guys being like, hey, this pace is probably not sustainable. And it may be something you want to keep in mind as you think about what you're going to be doing the next few months, the next year, whatever. Again, we we mentioned this earlier, it it is really hard to think about what all of this must have been like for the band members. It must have been an incredible weight on their shoulders that maybe went away for 90 minutes a night when they were up on stage. But we are lucky that they collectively, one way or another, figured out how to get through that period and sustain themselves and still be here today. These were all very, very awesome stories. It's always great to listen to you and and hear from you and really appreciate you coming on and talking about this era, very important one in their history. But uh, I I think we got to talk for the last thing for this here, you know, going forward. 2024, 
what do you expect from this year? What should we expect in terms of album tour without giving out too much information? Like we're sitting here, we're obviously a month away or so from the new year. And we're, it's just kind of like 2020 again. We're just excited to get something new. Exactly. And so am I, I, I think about the most that I can say is that it is going to be a very exciting year for Pearl Jam and for Pearl Jam fans, somewhat in the vein of what maybe 2020 should have looked like in terms of music and shows. And I, I'll have to leave it at that for the time being, but I think people are going to be very happy with what's in store. Excellent. Excellent. Awesome. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, really appreciate yeah. it. And uh, look, once the album comes out, like we'd love to have you on again and talk about it again. Absolutely. What do you think? Of course. It would be my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Well, uh, we'll All talk right, to guys. you then. Thanks for Sounds taking the time, man. Thank you. You bet. All right. With that being said, let's go into the show now. We got 19 songs. And it's going to be 1993. It's not the best bootleg in the world, but we get through it. There are things that we can talk about. There are talking points. So why don't we just start it off right now with a song that was making its opener debut now at the time. And then even afterwards, for a very, very long time, this was not known as an opening song at all. However, if you went on tour to see the band in the latter half of September, when they started doing the sit-down section, you may have seen this open up one or two of those shows. And I did see them open up with two of these shows. I went to Toronto, and I saw it at Louisville, which Toronto, I remember. Louisville, I don't remember this opening up the show, but that's what the stats say. So with six shows, it's tough to remember everything. But Daughter is our opener for this show for the first time ever. very different way to start yeah what they've been doing yeah i'm a little perplexed by this because it's <sighs> well i've got a theory you got a theory okay then throw out your theory and i'll i'll react to it i've got a theory my theory of course involves jeff and Matt. it's not just daughter to open it's daughter followed by glorified g right and my yep. thought is that jeff is tired of having to play a show and then sit down i think he gets up gets in the show he gets in the groove of the show and then he has to sit down and play a stand-up bass. And I think Jeff went to Ed and said, hey, let me sit down first, and then I can just get up and rock and not have to worry about sitting down again. 
think that's a really, really good hypothesis for that. And I'll even hyping back to what we talked about last week, that version of Glorified G, it looked like he just wanted to burst out of his seat right yeah. there and just yeah. throw that thing through the roof. I fully agree. Yeah, look, nowadays things are set up in a way that they don't have to play the upright bass songs next to each other. And if they sure. did, then it would just get even more monotonous as years went on. Like they're, And Jeff is 60 now. He's not 30. Exactly. So he's not... The, he doesn't mind. Yeah, the seat actually is very helpful in this instance. But as far as an opener goes, I was never a fan of it when seeing it last year. I was a little bummed out when getting in Toronto. I'm like, okay, this, you know, look, out of all the hits, Daughter is down near the bottom on the list for me. Oh, really? And yeah. Really? Yeah, I've never, like, I like Daughter, but it, like, compared huh. to Better Man and Alive and Even Flow and even Jeremy. Yeah, daughters kind of disagree. Like, well, that's the thing. You kind of have like eight to ten Pearl Jam songs that your average fan on the street would know, and that would be like a live Jeremy Even Flow, Daughter, Better Man, Last Kiss Led Better. How many I'm at right there? That sounded like seven or so, and then throw in I don't know, like Giving a Flyer to the Evolution or something like that, or even Just Breathe at this point could be added in that. And I think that like outside of last kiss i think that daughter is probably near the tail end that's not because of the song but that's because i think i just like everything else so much better and i think i guess what kind of sours me on the song a little bit in that opener is that i just like it wasn't the same juice that you usually start with like you can start with release and long road and have that juice and daughters i don't know it's weird to say like too mid-tempo for the opener but especially in 1993 you want one of the extremes you want to start off really easy and build your way in or you just want them to come out guns a-blazing and this didn't either yeah and it makes sense because they did not continue to do it this was kind of a one-off thing i think that afterwards if my theory holds that jeff was like all right i get it i i get why we don't do that but I love Daughter. I love the melody of it. I love the way Stone plays it. I don't mind this at all. It's like a little more melodic, like more of like when you get like a small town opener, which can be really effective. You get like a sing-along early on. I, I didn't mind this at all. I kind of like Daughter as an opener. I do remember that Louisville version. It was pretty good. We've talked about it the couple times that they've opened with a live. Like you can't do the big haze. You can't do all that because it's an opener and it really, it doesn't fit in that spot. And I think the same kind of goes for daughter and the tag that you just don't do a tag in the opener because you don't really want an opener to meander for longer than it does like they did the whole shades go down you can hear ed kind of do the the shades go down and kind of do like his the muffled kind of voice there but you don't need a tag because you just want to get into the next thing and i think Kind of what hurts us a little bit is that once they do go into Glorify G, and it might just be because we're so used to this and we hear it all the time, but like listening to these two back to back to start the show just took me to the mid set really quickly. And this is a one time, one time only kind of thing, but I didn't feel like you started the show with these. I felt like, okay. We're somewhere in the middle, and now what happens? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, there's just better avenues to take 
during this time period. You can go the easy one. You can go release and oceans and wash, and then jump right into a go animal. Why go anything of those likes? But yeah, this kind of threw the balance off of the very early onset of the show for me. So, but. They do follow up. They do go into why go and deep right here. And again, kind of like what we talked about last week, why go fits perfectly in this place, either the two or the three that it seemed to be kind of fitting into at the time. And once again, you get yourself kickstarted. Ed's doing those haze in the beginning forever. It wasn't as prolonged extended as last week's it didn't have that commanding presence but it was still very very good and i think that day bay is definitely a highlight on this as we do end up talking about day bay more and more it is interesting to kind of listen and see where he is because if he doesn't feel his hands then is he on top of everything and that's something that i wanted to listen for like okay is there any moment where it feels like he's struggling and I don't really hear it. And it, it, like yeah. you do hear the drums a lot in the show because it's, again, not a great boot. You don't hear the vocals very well. The guitars, they don't feel separated. So you're listening to Dave a lot, and, and it doesn't feel like he really misses a step at this show at all for what he said happened to him. And, and Why Go, I think, is one of the highlights for him in this, especially in the chorus. Very tight and snappy, and then getting into some filthy fills in the solo right here that are very, very aggressive. I thought this was an excellent Dave A version of Wygo. Early on, probably at this point, he's still probably in pretty good shape. I think that starts later, but that puts the improvs in kind of a new light too, that like maybe somebody needed a minute on it, especially that later one. For me, this is, and again, I'll throw out the caveat that like, it may be because of the bootleg quality, because yeah, like you said, the instruments are a little muddled. I would put this at like a C, C minus quality maybe. For me, this is a fantastic Ed show. I think knowing what we know coming off of New Orleans, I think he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, a little bit of anger seeping through, a little bit of frustration coming to head. This show, Ed is just on fire. And I think every song, I think he is doing different things. The the improv, especially the next one's coming up deep and even flow in this next little section here. He is completely fired up, just screaming at the top of his lungs, going for it. Uh, You know, sometimes you talk about, oh, this is a stone show. This is a mic show. For me, this show is all about Ed and like what's going on inside his head. This is actually the first 1993 version of Deep that we've done within this little grouping of shows that we've talked about. So the thing that you're always listening for in this era is how are they going to finish this song? How intense are they going to get? It's all about the descent into madness, spiraling out of control into chaos. And this one does that. His vigor on this and that scream in the beginning, which unfortunately, like, right after it happens, we get, like, a a minor cut to the verse. 
which we don't get the whole thing on, but boy, that Descent into Madness on this is very, very good, and Ed is just screaming something, just like spiral into the ether as this is going on. It's very tough to understand. A lot of his doesn't speak a lot at the show, but when he does, a lot of it's difficult to understand, but you understand how visceral he's feeling. The arrest and everything that happened with the fan in New Orleans is still weighing heavily on him. Has to be. Yeah, this is only a couple days after again, so yeah, it's yeah. it's hard not to get over that. And especially, he hasn't learned kind of how to balance his body and mind just yet. He's still as young as you knew of Ed back then, but he would get there. This is not the time for that, though. Well, after Deep, we're going to get an improv and then we're going to get into even flow, which feels like they're seamless together, which works really, really well. We can talk about a little bit more in just a second. But this improv is known as Take Me. And I really like this. And at the beginning, I thought to myself, hmm, this sounds a little bit like a binaural song. that of the girl vibe it's got a little bit of that moodiness to it it reminded me a lot of something they would have done in 95 it had kind of that open air feel to it this is obviously a little bit more stark than what of the girl is and of the girl can be a little bit more upbeat once you get the drums kind of moving in it and obviously bluesy but this almost with that starkness felt i don't know i was getting like doors vibes from this like a little bit of the end and some of those like very intense guitar strikes that kind of sounded like lightning bolts coming down a very deliberate snare and and kick drum hits this got intense and this was very captivating to listen to again lyrics are tough to decipher but what you do know is some of these saying what are you doing when i'm gone blow my head off with your gun if you're gonna take me take me there It won't matter anyhow. If you're going to take me, take me home. That's dark. That's some dark stuff that's going on. And you have to just wonder what else is up there right here. And again, as we talked about with Jonathan, everything is weighing on him so heavily that some of these thoughts could be poking in and out his head time and time again. And to maybe alleviate them 
is to just let them out in the open on stage. This is the 90 minutes per night that they can put that stuff in the background and just focus on the music. And yeah, it's like music is your therapist for 90 minutes. You're just going to open everything up, just open the wounds up, cut yourself and bleed and just give the audience everything you have. That's the best thing you can do. And that's what they did every night in 1993. As I mentioned before, the transition into even flow. And again, they were so on top of things when it came to improvs. We talked about that when we did the hold on improv and how perfect that was and how that's one of the best that you can find, not just from this era, but of all time. And it was almost like they had planned beforehand, like this is going to go into even flow. We're going to end on that chord so it can feel seamless here. And once it kicks in, like it just feels like such an obvious transition. Whoa, I, I love this. I thought that this was terrific. And this version of Even Flow, it's nothing flashy. I thought it zipped and very straightforward and to the point. I think you, you had mentioned something before about Ed for Even yeah. Flow. What do you got on this for him? Yeah, just completely fired up. And it felt like he was adding a little bit more fire and a little bit more intensity to the lyrics on this than you normally get on an Even Flow. Yeah, I can see that for sure. So. They're coming out of this, and Ed says, as long as you're here, and then it's mumblecore, you know? I can't tell. I'm going to guess. I don't think he's saying this, but is it a tie-in to go? As long as you're here, don't go on us. Like, could it be that? It didn't sound like Makes that. Sense. But, Makes sense. Right. Something like that, yeah. We're just, we're just playing guesses here. So this is going to go into go an animal. Here's an interesting point. There are only five versus songs at this show to start the show they do two of them and then right here barely you can, i don't even know if you can call this the middle of the set it's like mm-hmm. just getting into the middle they do another two and then blood's gonna come a little bit later and that's it well i gotta think there were gonna be more i mean probably a rats or a rearview mirror and a difference in an, in an encore but that didn't end up happening Yeah, I can see that. And I also, we're going to get Sonic Reducer in just a little bit. I wonder if that was an audible because that felt like it could have been a rear view mirror spot. But yeah, it it does feel weird that you are getting more 10 songs. And like, I don't know, is this the latter half of Gigaton Tour kind of show for (laughs) verses? I don't know. What did you think of the combo? It's all about the ending. Ed, Mike, and Dave at the ending of Go just pushing that tempo, trying to just set everything on fire on stage, if it felt like. And then Ed, you know, again, feeling it, hadn't thrown in a little fucking at the end of Animal there, letting you know, like, the rage is still present on this night. He's still feeling it. I love the ending of Go. That's another example of, Dave's okay, what are you guys talking about? He's fine. It just a, right, like right. picking up the pace and giving that like chaotic, very frantic ending to that. Oh, I mean, vintage 1993 kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Animal again, the Mike Solo book ended by some Tom bashing and crashing cymbal hits in this, just executed wonderfully. And then at the end, like it kind of does one of these, oh, five against one, like matter of factly zipping through that I, I i thought that 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 was pretty cool just kind of throwing it out there like ah we got this ah five against one it's just very cool all right he talks again and i think we got the whole thing right here it's not much i don't know if you've ever heard this song it's called alone and it's what i'm feeling right now 
Hmm, maybe yeah. that's yeah. a little bit of what went in to take me. You know, it's, yep. look, you can be in a band up on stage, and then you know, once it comes time to traveling, and you get on the bus together. But when you get into the hotel room, and I, I know that Stone really wanted them to still split rooms in in the hotel together, but that wasn't happening in 1993. You go your own separate way, and it's not like you've been to Nacogdoches, Texas before. I know that they went to like Dallas and some other places in Texas in 1992, but I don't Ed really has much to do in some of these places. So he's and also like, yeah. And he's also for better or worse, he's the face of this thing. Like Mike McCready can still walk down the street in 1993 and be relatively left alone. Eddie Vedder can't do that. That's a different feeling than being a singer in Pearl Jam than being the bass player or the lead guitarist or the drummer. Yeah. And you can just see it all way on him. Like it's one of those things where say he were to walk on the street at any time of day, and maybe it doesn't happen in Nacogdoches as much as it does in Philadelphia or a place like that. But like, it could be a Beatles thing where people just start chasing him. You know what I mean? Like that's the last thing he freaking wants. And and we saw how he reacted in New Orleans. You see what would happen in 95, 96, wearing the fly mask and making this thing a little more faceless and the stalker issues and all that's tied in, all that starts here. And even some of the traveling without the band, too, kind yep. of ties into yep. it a little yep. bit. So, of course, the song is alone. It's going to be packaged together with Sonic Reducer right here. It is the quote-unquote rare song for 1993 and its 20th all-time play especially it being the second song they ever played live. That's kind of crazy that they've got to that point, but all time has only been played 48 times. So yeah, once again, you hear Dave just rock this. And I think we've talked a lot about how Dave has just been the master of the ride symbol for a lot of these songs. And this is exactly what this song is. He's just working that ride symbol and like putting in all those little embellishes here and there. And What's Ed doing in this breakdown right here? He's kind of singing something like, if I can't help myself, and like, kind of trails off a little bit, but what do you think Ed's doing there? Yeah, I don't know. It's, I think it goes back to what he said at the beginning about how, you know, I think he's fully in it in the moment on this version. I think he maybe got to him a little bit and he felt like this is getting a little too insular right now, hitting a little too close to home. But yeah, I mean, the song is perfectly tailored to what Dave does. It's got all those changes, it's a little bit angler, fits right in with all of his you know i don't mean this is a put down but all of his busyness and all of his like you said embellishments he puts on everything that really works well on a, on a song like alone you can accent all those like kind of weird parts and changes that the song has sonic reducer absolutely smokes let's not forget about that too we're not we're not it's part of the package deal we talk about them all yeah a little bit of punk rock for you i think he's saying before getting into sonic and just randomly in the mid set I mean, I don't have the breakdown of where Sonic Reducer's been played over the years, but I know from listening to a lot of shows, it's usually near the end. It's usually kind of in the cover spot whenever there's not a Baba or Rockin' or whatever song is filling that spot for the night. But in the middle of the set to bring some punk rock into this, how do you think that kind of fits in right here? You're preaching to the choir here. I don't think there's ever a bad time to break out Sonic Reducer. 
Yeah, I love Sonic Reducer here. I think it would have fit in more maybe after Go and Animal. If we're going to nitpick on construction here, maybe you tie it in, you put the third one there, and you add a little a knockout punch to Go and Animal. But the original Sonic Reducer, the Dead Boys version, is a little more mid-tempo, but the way Pearl Jam play it, it's super fast and super punk rock. So I love this version, absolutely smokes, and I love that they go right into that improv too, adds a little bit to it. You mentioned Ed having a really good show. I think that maybe the peak was during Sonic Reducer. He is at full intensity in this version. Just, again, peak 1993. So what else can you say on that? But that improv, we get another one here. It doesn't have a namesake like Take Me. It's just a cool improv. What'd you think of this one? Because it's just a very hard rock driving sound. Yeah. It doesn't seem as polished as I thought that Take Me was, but it's a nice little transitionary moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think it works very well coming where it does as a kind of a bridge in between Sonic Reducer and Garden. I thought Stone really was holding this one down on the guitar from, from what you can hear. And yeah, a much more kind of upbeat, more kind of rocking improv, which I think fits for what you want right here in this set. So going into Garden, first of all, like Dave A and those massive kick drum strikes over the verses here, just that thump that he has on this, it gave this song almost like a even more dramatic, like almost thematic way of playing it and, and hearing it because yeah, Garden can go through that and Garden can have a lot of drama to it, but when Dave puts in that extra ferocity to it and a little extra thump to it, this turns in from a good performance to something that you would hear in a movie kind of deal, like a soundtrack sort of thing. Like tense scenes action movie kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, again, it's the ending of Garden. I think it's a good version, and then you get to that ending with Mike and Dave and Ed where it just gets taken to another level. And we're getting to the end of Dave's time here and the show, and you know you wonder like yeah this guy can't feel his hands but luckily his arms are still working very well because the ending of a couple of these songs here at the last part of the main set is going to be just spectacular and yeah that ending on garden pushes into just something really special yeah it really clicks there's a big headbanging moment which is one of my favorite facets that garden can bring you and also it kind of sounded like it could have gone on for much longer than it did oh, sure like, yeah this could have been seven eight minutes yeah 
yeah, maybe it could have been like almost another improv or something like that. It was a long version as it was. But you hear the crowd afterwards, and the crowd is going to be a story once we get into later and kind of evolves, but the crowd is just wild after this, and they're ready for anything. This was excellent, excellent, excellent version. Ed kind of gauges the crowd, and really little bits and pieces that he spoke earlier weren't much. It wasn't like communicating with the crowd, but here's a little bit more, but it's all kind of, again, jumbled up with sort of the mumbleness of what this show is. And it says, our lives have gotten crazier lately. Same as yours, right? Something, something, something about the place. Something about the planet. It's all kind of unintelligible, but you do hear him say, keep your hopes up. Is there any more that you got out of that? No, no. Hard okay. hard to make out. Yeah. Yep. But you, you get the ordeal. It's just kind of the thing he says. Jeremy into blood. I think there were some missed opportunities on Jeremy to make this more of a version like we heard last week that had that kind of intensity that went off. I I didn't think that Jeremy had all of that energy that really good early versions of Jeremy has. Obviously, the crowd is going to be on top of it because it is the biggest song that they have, but I don't think it had that overtly inspirational kind of moment in it it was fine it was in a position where it was working and it kind of got you into some more songs that were a little bit more of the radio songs but this was not like the best jeremy i've heard from this era i could go with that i mean they're in texas the story of jeremy obviously comes from texas yeah so that's a little surprising you know they're obviously going to play it but and again the recording doesn't do it any favors but it didn't feel like that they were pushing on Jeremy like they were on some of the other stuff like we talked about with like a go or animal garden things like that it didn't have the kind of extra juice that Jeremy can have when it's really good Blood is gonna take everybody by notice and once again Ed Fierce we talked about a lot last week it's a candidate to just kick you in the gut every single time and I'm not gonna use this as a criticism because I don't think it's fair as a criticism because I, I think it kind of gets interpreted a little bit after this era, especially more commonly, but it did feel like there was something missing when you don't have that atomic dog or even just an extension of that middle part. It just kind of, just for like one little measure until the painted big turn it into, and it doesn't have a big build up into what's going to be like a powerful knock you off your seat kind of ending it still works it's still very good but i think that versions that i prefer just build you up to that big moment and kind of give you that space because it is so intense in those two verses when you get to that point that i think you just need some time to get stomp in and get your claps down and you can do a bow wow wow yippee oh yippee and whatever else have you fame 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 it doesn't matter I think you kind of need that to build you back up and start the circus all over. I think Ed is, again, fantastic on this, but I wonder if Dave is communicating with the band at this point, like something is wrong. And I wonder if that is affecting these performances here at the end, because yeah, you're right. And this version of blood is great for knowing what we know, but it would make sense that there may be, something i won't say holding back because that might not be the right way to phrase it but there might be a little bit of uncertainty going on on stage as to dave saying guys something's wrong i don't know what's going on 
and I, I wonder, and again, this is one where we, we don't have a video, we don't have a great recording, I'll mention it again, but I wonder if that is playing into this latter part of the main set here. So you think they're just trying to push it through? Could be. You kind of get into survive crisis mode, survival mode, like, yeah. get, get through it. I hear that. Okay, I can buy on that. So now, I don't even know if this was supposed to end the main set. It's 15 songs, which is well, right around I, what I they were think doing. There was the a, I gotta think there was a porch coming there. You'd have to think, because I, I think I looked at it the other day, and it looked like that porch, this was the only show that it missed on this tour here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if they didn't have to miss Porch, why would they? So I think it was supposed to be alive going into Porch, but again, that's me sort of estimating the time and kind of making an educated guess off of that. But well, I think that that's Dave too saying like I can't. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's it's very clear that he can't. Might have been on the original set list and they just couldn't do it. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of what I'm gathering here is that yeah. there would have been no way if Dave were healthy that they wouldn't have done it that way. And Alive, I just want to throw this out there. I feel like with the last couple versions of Alive, we I don't want to say we glanced over them at all, because that's not really what we did, but I, I don't know if we gave them its due for how good it still was in this era, because 1994, 1995, once you get into those a little bit more, it starts to kind of have more of... The we're sick of this. We don't really yeah. want to do it, and that's mostly it became obligatory. Ed. It became a routine, right? There's still some fire under this, and sure. sure, there are versions very early on where Ed does that "I'm ready to fuck you" line, and that's going to get a huge reaction every single time. But as awesome as it goes on into the ending, as awesome as Mike sounds, we actually don't get to hear what could have been the moment that. Dave said, all right, I'm done. I'm out. Because the audio for the song clips out probably midway through the solo at the end. We don't get the full thing. So I think that's just kind of a flip the tape thing and nothing else. It wasn't like a reaction like, oh, I have to stop this not to get any of Dave's stuff on tape. No, you want to get everything on tape because that's what you're documenting. But when you think of what's going to happen next, it, it is kind of weird that we don't have that. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, there's this little piece of history that is kind of a mystery to us. Yeah, I tried to look and see if I could find any, like, first-hand accounts of this. There's a couple of people who, I think there's one of the forums that somebody had posted, like, hey, if you were there, let us know. But only one or two people and no real first-hand accounts of, like, what actually happened during this part and, like, what it actually looked like from the crowd as to what was done on stage. Was there any kind of confusion? Was there like an explanation? But yeah, we just don't know. Again, go back to what Dave had told us. It felt like he got through it and then said afterwards, guys, I'm out. I, ca- yeah. I can't go on any further. So it might have just felt like nothing. And, and maybe people that like don't quite understand like obviously they do the whole thing at the end we love you dave and all that but like maybe they just kind of don't think about this show in that facet like we do now like looking at it uh, under a different microscope right so and by the way i don't think i mentioned it before but thank you so much to dave for sharing that with us it seemed like it came from a place from the heart and like not an easy thing that he was going through at the time, and I'm sure like that's not one of his happiest memories of Pearl Jam, and he didn't have to share something like that. 
He didn't, but thankfully he did, and it was very cool of him to get that feedback on that. So thank you so much if he's listening. Who knows? Yes. He did end up watching something on YouTube that we had done a long time ago when we did a drummer game show, and he commented oh, on cool. that. So who knows? Maybe he takes a listen. He does know the podcast exists, so put it that way. All right. It's time for the encore, so before we get into that, let's pause for station identification right here, talk a little bit about the things that are going on in the universe of Live on Four Legs. Now, if you are on Patreon, if you've been seeing what's been going on on Patreon, last week we had the interview with Jack McDowell, but it was so kind of crazy and last minute that I just kind of inserted it into a spot in the episode that I thought that it fit, and I didn't really do anything extra to kind of tell you guys like that wasn't all that we talked to Jack about. I, I should have done something in like last week's Patreon break or something like that. But what we did was we released the full interview that we had with Jack McDowell to Patreon last week. And it's very good. And for anybody that's a music fan, a baseball fan, like we just kind of talked through it all. And the latter part of the conversation, when we are talking about baseball, that wasn't really interview we kind of did our little like faux goodbye like oh thanks for coming on the show and then continued talking kind of deal so we talked a little bit about his thoughts on current baseball and stuff and it's very funny he likes to write music about how he hates certain metrics in the game and we kind of talked about that stuff if you're a baseball guy or girl you would kind of enjoy a little bit of that conversation and kind of get like, if you don't like pitch clock stuff, if you don't like how pitchers are way too reliant on their velocity and stuff like that, he, he has a good discussion on that. We talk a little bit about that. We also talk about the baseball project, Mike Mills and what those guys have done with that and how he has been interpreted in that and how they wrote a song about him. That's obviously about the moment of when he was a Yankee where he got the, the, the Bronx cheer, I suppose. Yeah, the, and the Yankee flipper. Yeah, he gave him one right back. That's right. There was also another good chunk about Ed that we didn't edit into last week's episode, too, about the White Sox hat that I thought was very, very good. So if you want to check that all out, that's over on Patreon. And I'm kind of thinking that there are things in the Jonathan Cohen interview that we're going to have to post an uncut version of that to Patreon, too, because, I mean, our whole entire conversation was great and it was all stuff that is captivating keep you on your seat and he's so well versed in what this band has done and and kind of sees things through that lens of just documenting the whole entire history that it's stuff that i want you guys to be able to listen to so you know after thanksgiving or something like that unless i post it today who knows but if you're listening to this on wednesday I probably, honestly, unless this is done and cut, I might not post it until after, I gotta mention this every week, but yeah, the moving is is right around the corner, so it might not be till after that, but it's gonna come soon. I know I'll probably push it and probably have it out the week after Thanksgiving or something like that, but just know that there's gonna be an uncut version of our interview with him that's gonna come at some point very, very soon. So... If you are interested in listening to that, listening to Jack and all the good things that he had to say, and maybe even going out and listening to an Evolution episode that we should have pretty early December that we're going to have Indifference Evolution coming out, then head on over to Patreon. Donate to the show and help us out because it's really important that we just keep getting funded and we keep being able to do this podcast. This is something that we just kind of do 
it's hard to say in our spare times because it takes up a lot of our time, but you know, it, it takes a lot of effort to be doing this and it takes a lot of funding to have to do this. So we rely on you guys for a lot of things, including putting up our website. And there were some things that I had to do on the website to get more storage this past week that cost a little bit more extra money. So, you know, we rely heavily on all the donations to come in to keep us afloat. So if you guys believe in what we're doing and you guys want to hear, obviously, more history of this band and a lot more of your favorite memories and things like that, then that's what we provide to you. And we just, again, for all those people on Patreon, we want to provide a little bit extra. So if you are not on Patreon, head on over to patreon.com slash live and four legs right now. What are you doing? Just hit subscribe. You can join for a dollar a month. That's it. And if you want to take a couple months to just feel it out, listen to some stuff, then that's fine. And then if you want to contribute a little bit more later down the line, you're more than welcome to, of course. If you contribute $5 a month, you get your own requested episode where we will tell your story on the show. If you decide you want to donate to the horizon leg tier for $10 a month, then you will still get your requested episode, but you will also get a profile episode where you can talk about your Pearl Jam fandom. And we are still working. I know I've mentioned this a lot, but we're working on merch packages specifically for the horizon leg tier. I have a little thing in motion right now. So I think it's going to be a t-shirt, and I think you guys are really, really going to like it. I think it's going to entice a lot of people to want to join up on that tier and help us out. So if you do want to join, again, I, I mentioned patreon.com slash live on four legs, but you can also join by downloading the Patreon app and searching for live on four legs, or you can go to live on four legs.com before you click the button that says become a patron. You can read any of our many, many articles including maybe in a couple weeks reading the best of the 2023 tour list that we're going to put out. Yeah. Just like we did last year. It's not going to be a hundred. Just put that out there. It's not going to be a hundred songs, but it will be a substantial amount of songs that really reflect on the best moments that Pearl Jam did live in the eight shows that they did them this year. So I hope you guys are excited and enjoy that because we really love doing this piece. It's a collaborative thing, and we got some really, really great people to help us out this year. People that were involved at the show, people that are special people to us that have been with this podcast for a really long time that just love contributing. It's important to us. So make sure you read something like that or you read a Concertpedia page, anything of those likes. There's lots of material over there. If you want to read that, and when you're done, if you just want to click the Become a Patron button, it will redirect you and show you how to become a patron for any of the tiers that I mentioned before, the $1, the $5, the $10 tier. That gets you right in. The only other thing I want to mention right now is that our holiday gift exchange is going, and thank you, everybody. I think we got 75 people in this year, which is remarkable. And just remember, if you're listening and you haven't sent out a gift yet, the deadline for that is on the 3rd of December, and then we're going to do our party on the 14th. So some fun things happen at the party. We might have a couple performances this year like we usually do. We're going to open gifts, of course, but I think we're going to do a little bit of a game show where maybe it becomes a little bit of a tournament, depending on how many people want to play. But... All I got to do is play with your ears, if that makes sense. That's all I will tee up for right now. But all you got to do to want to be in on this is be there that night. And 
for patrons, I will post the link to the Zoom on Patreon when the time comes, probably the day of. If you're on Facebook, we have a Facebook event invite. Go and find that. Things will be posted to that. Or if you're not on any social media, if you're not on Patreon, whoever, it doesn't matter if you're a patron or non-patron in the gift exchange, not in gift exchange, email us live on four legs podcast at gmail.com. The number four, by the way, and send us an email and let us know that you want to come to this event and hang out with other Pearl Jam people because it's just a really, really fun time. So head on over. And if you want to be part of the game show, we might have a nice little prize for the winner. So hang on to that thought. But before we get into all that, we got to finish a show from Nagadoches here. So back to the rock. So when they're back out for the encore, and it's tough to tell by the audio, but from what Dave has told us, it does seem like there is an encore here. I know there are a couple places that don't suggest that there is an encore, but talking to Dave with the wonderful livefootsteps.org, he has agreed to make this an encore show. So we're on the same page on that. Thank you, Dave. And really tough to tell what he's saying here, but he's addressing the matter at hand says they're kind of freaking out right now. There's something wrong with Dave. He's kind of passed out in the back. And he was excited for playing in his hometown and everything. And then starts saying, it's like, not sure if it's atrocious, snagadocious, and it keeps kind of going on and on and on. But I think he's trying to kill a little time before things get set up for the next couple songs. So he just says, we're just trying to figure out a couple songs we can play and try to get through them. And the first one up, is going to be a song that they had only played twice to that point. You know this song very, very well, because after this date, they would play it 387 more times, and usually it would be the last song you hear of the night on mostly very, very important shows. And that song, of course, is Yellow Lead Better. okay, we can do this just with Mike leading the way here is pretty impressive, especially with the lack of reps that they have. I mean, you really got to be a little bit ballsy to put that out there. I don't know how much they were really practicing it at the time or sound checking it, but it's no easy stretch to want to do something like this. But it seems 
like the crowd is extremely appreciative of it. This is a song that was gaining ground even by late 1992 that was starting to get radio play as a B-side, something that's almost unheard of in rock and roll. And this is one of those songs that from that time period, people just started to attach to and be like, where is this? Why is this not part of the Pearl Jam experience? And at this point, and even it wasn't really until like end of 1995, 1996, where it sort of got to that point, but they're starting to feel it out. And you can tell, especially in this very, very intimate version with this crowd, Mike is taking advantage of this open canvas and oh my god does he deliver on this I'm so glad they, they took this opportunity to play this song in this spot because they could have just done elderly woman or just gone any other direction just purely acoustically but no they come out with lead better and they throw the gauntlet down they're like hey we don't want to do this without our drummer but we fucking can yeah, this absolutely could have been a train wreck. And you can tell, I think you kind of hit on it, that this is the Mike McCready show now. And I can totally hear him stepping up and being like, you guys follow me on this one. I got this. Because he definitely sounds different. It almost feels like he's playing a little more percussive to kind of add that little bit of kind of rhythmic feel to it to kind of keep everyone going. It's a very different sounding version of Yellow Lit Better than you're used to hearing. And that's because Mike is stepping up and driving it completely. Like this is all him from start to finish. You have a lot of credit to Jeff as well. That's a pretty thick bass line that he's putting on out there to kind of fill in some of what would be a little bit of that open air, essentially. He's, he's filling in some of that percussive part too. The he, crowd too doing the hand claps. Oh, the crowd was terrific. It's a great moment to show that there was a unity in this crowd with this band, that they did feel kind of like what Jonathan was saying before, that there was a kinship together, that the band and the crowd felt like they were on the same plane and the band felt so comfortable in front of them that the crowd could, literally they could do anything and everybody usually says, oh, they could play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and you know, I'd sit there and I'd rock out my ass off, cry my ass off, and it's true. They could do anything with this crowd, and they would be all over it. So, we haven't talked to one of our best friends at all in this show, because he was saving his time for these two songs, from Better and Into Footsteps, because he thinks it's very, very interesting what we got going on here. It's not every day that you're just going to sit there and not use your drummer for a couple songs, so... Javier loves himself for some Mike McCready. We're going to get the first little segment from Javier here talking about Leadbetter. Then once we're done with Footsteps, we'll hand it over to Javier again, too. So let's get his take on this one. Hey, Randy. Hey, John. Hey, everyone on the podcast. So again, we're covering 1993 of the show and the place that I can't say the name right. So I'm not going to butcher it. But all right. So Yellow Leadbetter. Everybody loves this song, right? Like even for the more casual fan, whenever you meet someone that they tell you, hey, I like Pearl Jam too. They're like, yeah, I love Yellow Lead Better. And 
it's kind of like a good starting point of a conversation before you go into the rabbit hole of how much you like them. But a couple of interesting things that we need to talk about this version especially, I think it's pretty good. It's just the fact that they don't have any drums. I was not able to find any YouTube recordings of this or any videos of this, but it seems to me that Jeff is playing at the upright bass or something fretless because in the way that the bass tone sounds, it sounds a little bit more like that it will fit what a upright bass or a fretless bass will be. I think you take that celebratory thing away from Yellow Let Better if it will be placed at the end, but I think it make it like some sort of like a beautiful love song, if that makes sense. Tone-wise, the recording was a little hard to listen to, guys, so my apologies for that. It does match with what they were using around that time, which is Marshall JCM 800s when you crank them very loud. Marshalls, they tend to get a little boxy, so you can really hear that on the recording. At least that's what I could hear. Stratone, most like the 1962 Japanese version reissue. The stone and Jeff gave Mike as a gift when he started to play with, with those guys in Pearl Jam. So in another shout out, if you have time, go to YouTube, find Shred with Shifty. It makes an episode with Mike, spills a lot of the secrets. And when I watch the episode, because Randy is like, hey, have you seen this? I'm like, not yet, but I will tonight. My inner kid was very happy because a lot of theories that I had were right. So <laughs> that's the nerdy equipment, gear, crap that we always talk about. All right, stay right there. We still need you, buddy. We got one more and then we're going to throw right back to you. So... Stone comes on Mike, and I don't know, does he make a joke by saying, like, oh, well, that's somebody on the kit? Like, I can't tell. Yeah, you can't make it out, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like he might be making a little tongue-in-cheek reference or something, but Mm -hmm. then he's just like, oh, Jesus, and kind of... Maybe they put one of the puppets or something, or one of the things from the amps on there or something. Or who knows? Yeah, yeah. Who knows? But that will get you into footsteps, and while Ledbetter... I think really held its own without the drums. I do think that footsteps is fine, but also I think it has a little bit of that garage band just warming up while the drummer is still setting up his kit kind of sound. And the reason why I say that is because I think when you don't have the drums, you have the opportunity to turn this into the kind of footsteps version that is more stark that you can really sit on, that it could be a lot more open, that it could be a little bit more dark. And instead, it's kind of in the fashion of the upbeat version that we talked about last week in New Orleans, which I loved. I loved that version, but I think they should have went all in and tapped into a little bit of the darkness. And I get why they didn't, because that's probably not their line of thinking at the time. They're much more talented musicians at this point where they can just be like, okay, follow my lead and do this but at that point it's just like play a song let's get this out there this is one that works for this moment so let's play it but i think that i don't want to say missed opportunity because all this is taking opportunities but i was a bigger fan of lead better than i was of footsteps Mm, oh disagree i think footsteps sounds much more confident because it goes back to the original version of it, right? The rock line version. They know they can do this without drums. Like Yellow Lead Better felt a little bit just like Mike just leading the show. Footsteps feels more like a full band. You could tell they were more confident and they knew what they had. They knew what they could do with it. 
See, I think that's kind of what I was saying before. The difference between that Rockline version and this is that Rockline version is really stark. And yeah. it kind of like evolves into what the song is going to be and builds up to those moments. And I think having it a little bit more upbeat kind of makes you think that it needs the drums in a way. And I think that's where I was with this version. Not like I'm sitting here wanting to turn off footsteps in any way. And again, through the situation. But I think that maybe it should have had a little bit more of that Ed and Stone together vibe on it. And maybe it was a case of like, we just played this and it sounded like this. So let's continue on that facet. And like, I think playing it like that could have used Dave. Playing it in the other direction probably would have been a highlight for the night. So let's hear from Javier again. Look, he told me he was on the same page as me, so it might be two against one here, but I'm going to just let him speak for himself. So let's hear from him because he's the smartest man in the room. Another one that is very different to the original version that we know. Although, I feel that they could have done more with this song. And again, my opinion is strictly based in what I listen to in the way that I would like to listen to this song. But this is a song that if you remove the percussion, you remove the drums, or even you remove the bass lines and you add maybe a 12-string guitar or an acoustic bass, you could have made it way much more dark, way much more stark, which I think it will fit better with what you were trying to do, removing the drums out of the mix. For me, Yellow Let Better was a win because I think it's a beautiful version, but I think footsteps run a little short to my taste. Although I'm always going to command bands to try different stuff, to try new things or reversion their old versions, or in this case, not as old version of the song that we were starting to get familiar with and it started to become a fan favorite too but maybe for the so-called rumor tour in 2024 we might have a different version of that but in this time it just didn't fit for me tone wise i can tell that the guitars were toned down a ton although probably around this time those guys were not using treble bleeds or anything like that so when you remove a lot of volume to just to control the fuss and control all the overdrive coming from the amps sometimes guitars are going to lose a little bit of presence but that's at least what i can hear but yeah it's great that they were trying new stuff but it's just for me i think they could have done so much more with it just to make one of those versions that you will always remember all right two great segments for this one thank you so much javier enjoy your thanksgiving my friend and that'll kind of lead into two more songs now, you can kind of hear this is this is interesting because obviously Ed at the time has, what, two guitar songs? I don't know if he was even playing Elderly Woman at the time. I don't think he was often. Yeah, yeah, I don't think but so. But he's got Rear Mirror, he's got Whipping. 
that he plays at shows at this point. And then in mm-hmm. 1994, it'll change a lot. Not for you all the time and corduroy. And it's funny because when you hear the crowd go wild a little bit, it's either the taper or the person that's right next to the mic say, Hey, looks like Eddie's going to play. And it's like a surprising and exciting thing mm-hmm. that Ed's putting on a guitar for this. So a rare treat at that point in time and of course throw your arms around me is all full silhouette Stockholm show in 1992 is a show that the band didn't have an opener. So Ed came on stage, I believe with like Smitty or one of their techs and did the first version of Driven to Tears. And then he did this. And that kind of is like, almost like the changing of the guard with covers is like, okay, what the future can hold for these covers that are gonna kind of go down in Pearl Jam is stuff that comes back not all the time but it's stuff that you can kind of connect Pearl Jam with whenever it's time to do a police song it's going to be driven to tears and whenever Ed has the opportunity to do something nice like in Chicago this past year one of my favorite moments from this tour after him talking about his grandma's house and pointing out the family that was in the crowd that was living there at that point in time playing this right afterwards that huge reaction from that crowd and it was an emotional moment it was great and it doesn't get played a whole lot so it does feel special whenever it comes and i think that uniqueness is thrown right into the song the minute that ed picks up that guitar you know it's something different unique and certainly the next night on tour they're not going to get anything close to this yeah they wouldn't do it again until the spring 94 only one show got it but I love this. I've been on a big kick of this song lately. Just absolutely love this song. One of the best covers that they do, I think. And yeah, a real nice surprise here. Like only the second version sounds amazing. And again, you can hear the excitement, like you said, from that person in the crowd going, like, oh, it's going to play. Like you get the feel like they're going to treat them to something special here. The band knows this is like kind of a crisis situation. They, they've got to pull some stuff out and like, what can we do? It's like, give me the guitar. I can do throw your arms around me and they break it out and it's just fantastic.
right, so those big build-up claps are incredible as the band is readjusting and getting because the crowd just keeps going on and on. It feels like they're on Team Pearl Jam this whole entire time. It just has to be so inspiring and just like a motivating factor. Like without the fact that Dave is in the hospital and worrying about him, how do you not come out of this moment like this where the crowd is just taking it in for themselves and say, wow, we really have done something special here. We're going to do one last one here. It's going to have some drums, but there is a little bit of a discussion on who could be behind the kit. Now, Urge Overkill opened up this set of shows. So as we we talked last week, we obviously mentioned that Blackie and, and one of the other band members was a part of what happened that night. And... I think they tour all the way through when they go to Vegas too. So they're on this leg for a while here. They, they, they tour with them for a while and we're not sure if it's Blackie that comes out to play drums on rockin' or if it's Chuck Treese that played drums with green river, a couple different places have a couple different ways, but of course we don't have video for this. We don't hear Ed introduce somebody specific. So we're not sure. Yeah, he just comes out and says, oh, look who we found. And there's no indication of who it was. I mean, Blackie Onassis was Urge Overkill's drummer, so that would make sense. But then Chuck Treese was their touring bass player, like Urge Overkill did not have a full-time bass player member. And Chuck Treese is a very well-known multi-instrumentalist. So we just don't know. We'll have to leave that one uh, up in the air for now. Whoever did this, the take is really cool. It's like a harder rock version of the Neil Shuffle. Like, two kick drum hits mixed in with a snare. Just very cool. Like, it, it's ignoring a lot of the cymbal usage that, of course, is Dave's calling card. And it feels kind of like if Neil wanted a little bit more of an edge to the song, that's the kind of beat that he would use to it. And just very makeshift performance that sounds really cool in a tough situation and created a memorable moment and rockin in the free world is the perfect song for someone who doesn't know how to play rockin in the free world to come out and play drums on it because it's very simple it's three chords it's four four you don't have to change you don't have to do anything crazy obviously we know what cameron has done with it and turned it into something very cool but you can get through it just by doing the very basic thing so makes a lot of sense whoever is on the drums is doing the best they can putting their own little spin on it another kind of different sounding version of a Pearl Jam classic at this point. And at the end here, Ed has the audience chant, Hey Dave! Get better Dave! Don't die Ed Dave! And the crowd eats it all up. Huge props to this crowd for coming in the clutch and giving the band the confidence to push this. This is excellent. Loved hearing this and it just made this show more approachable. Because you can tell even within the first 15, that there were some moments like, all right, this isn't as fun as you want a Pearl Jam show to be. Like, Ed's not communicating, collaborating at all, especially with the audio not being great. It's kind of just a bunch of songs thrown in. The set's not exactly the structure that we're used to, not just from 1993, but from any era. So it's a little off-putting in some ways, but getting the crowd specifically at the end here to back them up like this is really, really refreshing for this show. That is our show. 
let's talk about three moments here. Yup first. Yeah, yeah. This is tough because I would say there's a lot that's like above average, but there's not a lot that like jumps out at you as far as like this is the moment. So my number three is going to be footsteps. Enjoyed that a lot. My number two is going to be the take me improv. And my number one is going to be deep. All right. I liked all those picks. I think I'm going to go number three. Deep is up there for me. I really like deep in the show. I really like blood in the show. And I swear at some point I want to make sure that blood gets into the top three because it deserves it. But I'm going to go throw your arms around me at number three. I'm going to go take me at number two. And I, I do think that this show has a moment. And that moment is Yellow Ledbetter. Especially for the time where... It was a complete surprise, and to do it in this moment that was, you know, a sense of urgency and come out and just kill it with the crowd, like, all the elements thrown into that, I love this. I loved it, loved it, loved it, and I think once we talk about ratings, that specifically will help boost a little bit. So now we're going to talk about ratings, so let's see how it does. We've done a lot of very high-rated shows recently, and it's tough to put this one up there because it's, in a sense, it's incomplete. Like, they didn't get to get the full experience of what this show could have been, but they made the best of it. They gave the crowd a couple of really unique things, some new stuff at the time, and made the best of it. So taking that into account, I can't give this one, like, a super high rating. I'm going to give it a 7. All right. Yeah. So the first 15 songs... I was thinking the whole time, I'm like, well, look, it, it's not the best effort that we've seen from 1993, but I understand what's going on. I understand that, you know, we talked a lot about with Jonathan yet again, that it was tough to kind of put everything on the outside aside for 90 minutes sometimes. It was tough to do that. And a lot of it was actually just brought in as therapeutical moments, as we mentioned. But there were some moments that, like, again, the daughter glorified G-Open, not my thing, not crazy about it. And I was really ready to give this a 7. I was in the 7 territory. But Ledbetter especially, and just the way that they reacted to the scenario that went down of losing their drummer, I think that this is peak Pearl Jam way of doing stuff. There's a great moment that I'll always go back to as being kind of like when Pearl Jam has to do some unexpected things on the fly, like how do they react to it? And I, I've heard in interviews before from both Jeff and Ed that sometimes those make their favorite moments on stage because they never saw it coming. And one of my favorites happens to be from a Sao Paulo show in 2015. Really powerful show, and it's one of my favorite South America shows of all time. And during, I think it was like lightning bolt, ironically, that the rain comes down really hard and on a fly, they have to like put tarps over the equipment and everything like that. And it takes some time out and they have to like stop the show kind of. And they had something else on the set list to follow lightning bolt, but Ed decides, you know what? You guys take cover. I'm going to grab an acoustic guitar and we're going to do a nice little melodic sing-along little version of small town here because the crowd doesn't just want to sit there in the rain and wait for everything to stop. So Ed takes matters into his own hands. He plays the song. It's a beautiful moment. 
the rain stops and they rock out for the rest of the set. And I see what they did here as kind of a way of how they would treat stuff like that later. And that's why I think this does get a little bump for me. I'm giving the show a seven and a half because of that. I think that's a really intangible thing that they do that a lot of other bands, I don't know if they would even think to do that because maybe they're just listening to what's going on with the techs and backstage and they're like, well, stop for a little while. And like, there might be a lot of confusion, but you can't let the crowd think that there's a problem when there's a problem, you just get through it or you just walk out and they refuse to walk out. So I give them all the credit in the world for that. That's more than worth the 0.5. I couldn't go more than that because it just wasn't that show, especially yeah. I'll always go back to can't give a crappy bootleg a really, really good rating because that adds into it as well. Now, next week will be the second Vegas night from 1993. We did the first one back, I believe it was May of 2022 last year, where we did our month of vault episodes. So we did a bunch of, I think it was like finishing what we hadn't done from the vault releases. And the first night, of Vegas, obviously, as we mentioned before, with the Green River reunion and everything like that. That was the show that we covered. So if you want to go back and listen to that one, it's available for you. It's in the live on Four Legs Hall of Fame. It sure is. It sure is. But night two is something that I don't think gets talked about as much. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to put that on the table. One last thing before we go. If you are not subscribed to us on the platforms, the podcast platform of your choosing that you listen to, most people listen to on Apple or Spotify, but you can listen wherever you want. It doesn't matter to us. Just what matters is that you are subscribed and that you see the episodes pop up in your feed whenever they do come up, whether it's a Wednesday or a Saturday. It doesn't matter. It's usually Wednesday, clearly. But also on that point, if you are subscribed, then you can help the podcast by giving us a little bit of a rating. You can rate us five stars, the stars that we deserve. We've earned them. We've chipped away at them. So fully hope that you guys agree with us and give us the five stars. And on Apple, you can also leave a little comment and let the people know that are looking for a new Pearl Jam podcast to listen to or a new podcast just in general to listen to that we're something that people should pay attention to. Because a lot of what we do here is tell the history of the band. I think we told a lot of it today. And we also, somebody went to this show and they might not remember a whole lot from it. So we probably brought back some memories for some of those people that did go to this show on this night. And that's something we take a lot of pride in because that's what it's all about with Pearl Jam. That's why we keep going back to this band is because... Every single time we go and see them, it is like a moment in our lives that can never be replaced. It's something that's etched within our brains right next to birthdays, anniversaries, and family things that are so important. Like Pearl Jam is up there. That's what makes them so special is that we've kind of invited them into our family and they've invited us into theirs. So that's why all these memories are very, very special to people. And we take it very, very seriously that you guys are able to relive it in a way that maybe in 
just listening to the bootleg that you don't necessarily get. That's why we do this research. That's why we, we pull out the things that we pull out because we know that you guys deserve it all. So if that's not worth the five-star rating and a nice little comment, then guys, I don't know what is. But all I do know is that I think we're done here. It's time to say goodbye. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already. Miss you always. So this is kind of weird that we're getting to a Vegas show because on the day that we're recording this, it was actually unanimously approved that the Oakland Athletics are going to move to Las Vegas in a couple of years. That is not necessarily something that is celebrated by all of the baseball community, but it ties into whatever we're doing next week. And it's something to say as we say goodbye right here. So have a awesome Thanksgiving, everybody. I can't go without saying that right here. Just have a great time. Spend it with your family. Enjoy those days. Enjoy the young ones and eat your turkey and drink your beer, watch your football, play your football, whatever you got to do. Go out for Black Friday and buy as much as you can. You know, just just enjoy these times because the family time is, is so important. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday and I'll be spending it with my family and just know that my little one is going to have the same love and experience of Thanksgiving that I had over the years. So don't take it for granted. Just go out there and, and enjoy this time. And we can talk about it next week. We can, I guess, trip the fan. No, we can't. I'm going to just say goodbye. Goodbye. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Oh, yeah.